Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing, for she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahiroi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Drama, drama, drama. We have got some drama in this story, don't we? Guys, we are now 18 weeks into our series on Genesis, and uh, if you've been with us for any length of time, you've seen some of this drama play out. Uh, one of my favorite, favorite uh, study tools as we've been going through Genesis is a book that's uh, in my library called The Drama of Scripture, and I tell you that not so that you go buy it, but because I've never really appreciated the title of that book as much as I did this week. So I realized, man, this is such a drama. This story's got so much going on. So, guys, we're 18 weeks into this sermon series on Genesis. Uh, if you've been with us in this study for any length of time, uh, if you've been with us from the beginning, uh, then you may recall that uh, when we stug, dug into the story of Adam and Eve in the very beginning, that we discovered a pattern. Right? And the pattern that we discovered in Genesis was something like this, that God makes a promise, man makes a problem, and God restores Right? That's pretty much the pattern that we saw. And this pattern's not only existent in Genesis, but what we'll see is this pattern carries all throughout the scriptures. We saw this pattern first developed when God promised Adam and Eve abundant life in the garden as they lived according to his will, according to his ways. But as we discovered, they didn't live according to his ways, did they? Instead, they listened to the twisted words of Satan who told them that uh, they should not live according to God's will, but they should partake of the fruit, they should live according to their own will, uh, and take matters into their own hands. And that's what they unfortunately did. The results were catastrophic, as we know. Uh, this, the results of that were that they brought, what, sin, 
Guilt, shame, fear, they brought all these things upon themselves and the sin that they brought upon themselves has now been imputed to us as well. So uh, that story didn't go well. God made a promise, man made a problem, but as we saw in that story and as we're gonna see in this one, God restores. We saw in the story of Adam and Eve that God came to them, he pursued them, he covered them, and he made a promise to them. He said that if anyone would believe in the seed of promise to come, and friends, that seed was Jesus Christ, that they could be restored. And so the basic outline of our story is very similar today. That's the reason I tell you that. God makes a promise, man makes a problem, and God restores. In this story, God makes a promise to Abram, but when things begin to take longer than expected, Abram's wife, Sarai, she makes a sinful proposal involving a woman named Hagar. And just like the sin of Adam and Eve, some serious problems follow. But guys, God being consistent with who he is, he restores. And so we know the characters in the story are Abram and Sarai. Later their names are gonna be changed to Abraham and Sarah. He might catch me using both, but I'm gonna to try to stick to Abram and Sarai today because that's, what the text, that's how the text describes them now. But guys, just so you know, this story, it can actually be viewed from two different perspectives. And each perspective actually represents two different types of hardship. And because I think there's lessons to be learned from both, we're actually gonna look at both. Regardless of the perspective, however, what we're gonna see is that these, just like every story in scripture points to the grand story of the gospel. Friends, this story is no different. In this story, what we're gonna see is that God displays a miraculous intervention of grace. Okay, and before we jump in, I just wanna say one more thing. Guys, this is a story that we should all care about. We should all care about this because if we look at the story of Abram and Sarai, this story reminds us that left to our own devices, we can justify just about anything, can't we? All right. We're reminded that any one of us are just one sin away from the unthinkable. But also as we look at Hagar, guys, this story, it reminds those of us who've ever been used and abused and tossed aside that God sees, God cares, and God restores. So I want us to start by looking at the first point in our outline, that God makes a promise, okay? Specifically in this story, God makes a promise to Abram. We've covered that. But just so you know, chronologically, chapter 12 and 16, they're parallel. And so what I'd like to do is take just a second to kind of recap for those of you that have been here, but it's been a while since we covered chapter 12, and also introduce uh, this idea to you if you're new to Crosspoint. So... In chapter 12, God makes a promise to Abram. We covered this in detail. We actually took two weeks to cover this. Uh, you can easily go back in, uh, the, on the website and find those sermons. But he makes a promise to a man named Abram who is a pagan man living in the land of Haran. God chose him and he promised that he would make Abram into a great nation that would therefore be a blessing to all nations. And then in chapter 15, we saw God promise that his promise would come to be through a son of miraculous birth. Okay, so that's the promise that's been made to this man named Abram. You're gonna be made into a great nation that's gonna be a blessing to all nations. And, and my promise to you is, is this nation, it's gonna come about through a son of miraculous birth, through you and through Sarai. And then guess what, guys? 10 years goes by. 10 years goes by. And 10 years is a long time, right? Especially if you're 75 years old which Abram was. So now this puts Abram uh, about 85 years old. And I'm, I think this fact has to uh, influence the way that he and Sarai are probably growing impatient, right? They're probably reminded of the fact of their age uh, on a monthly basis, in fact, as they're trying to get pregnant, right? So it probably led to some of the doubt we see from Sarai. 
right? Hey, I'm getting older. We're getting older. This, this isn't happening. God promised this thing, but it's not happening. And so she, just like Eve did in the garden, she begins to second-guess God, right? And she makes a proposal to her husband, and she makes a problem, okay? Again, here's our pattern. God makes promises, and man makes problems. That's the second observation today. So I want us to look back at her proposal again in verses one and two. Read along with me. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Guys, we even supposed to talk about this stuff in church, right? I mean, this is crazy stuff, right? Yeah, I think it's such a reminder that the Bible doesn't hide the sins of man and we shouldn't either, right? But, but the reality is, is Sarah, Sarai, she knew she was barren. Uh, if you go back and you look at chapter 11, the latter part of chapter 11, it tells us that Sarai was barren. So she knew this. She also knew that she was old. And so she began to act on her doubts instead of her faith. She began to act on her doubts instead of her faith. She says in verse two that the Lord had prevented her from bearing children. Now, if you think about it, this statement is actually true, right? Because the Lord is the giver of all life. But what this statement also reflects is a lack of faith in her thinking. Okay, also, depending on the tone that we read into this, you can pick up on it, right? It's like she's blaming God for her barrenness here. Some of you guys know what this is like, maybe not in barrenness, but just to blame God for something that you don't have. You've asked questions, why me, God? Right, you're blessing all of these other people. Why not me? So that's kind of where Sarai is in this moment. You know what I mean. So what does she do? She, she takes matters in her own hands. She gets a surrogate mother for her child. It's a crazy story. But in any case, if you're wondering about why this is even a possibility, I thought I, wanted, I better explain this, right? I mean, polygamy is not, uh, it's not something that God willed. It's not a part of his God's plan. It's not something he endorses. But but let me just explain that Abram taking Hagar as a second wife was actually perfectly legal in the culture and time in which they lived. Legal custom in this time made it clear that a barren wife could actually give her maidservant to her husband for the purpose of uh, making an heir, right? If, that, if the wife was barren, she could give her maidservant to her husband. And if that union between her husband and this maidservant uh, produced a male son, then that son could then be adopted as the heir of the family. So with this in mind, it's, this plan of Sarah's, it's not, it's not only legal, but it may to some degree even be normal to the customs of the law and the land, right? And if you think about it, we're going to see this happen again later on in Genesis uh, with Rachel and Leah who also present their handmaidens to their husbands as wives. So we're going to see this pattern come up again. But as we'll see, guys, not everything that's legal is approved or endorsed by the will of God. Uh, we prayed for the church of Buffalo Creek this morning. Stan Britton over there, he and I were talking about this passage. And he goes, hey, man, it's never a good idea to let your wife pick your girlfriend. Just make sure you say that. <laughs> and I had to give him credit for that, right? So, uh, all right, that's the lesson. Let's go home, right? Now, the bottom line, guys, it's, Sarai's focus was far more on herself and her plans than God's plans in the big picture. Her, her, she was so self-centered in this moment. She'd lost track of the big picture, right? Remember, this baby's not just another baby, not that there is just another baby. What do I mean by that is this baby uh, is not just another baby in the sense that the baby that she is to birth is to be the beginning of the nation that God is forming to be a blessing 
to all nations, but she's lost sight of that. She's lost focus and she takes matters into her own hands. She abandons her faith in God's plan and she becomes self-centered on her own. It's one of the ladies in my community group said, Sarah's probably an emotional mess of hormones and insecurity who second guesses God and takes matters into her own hands. Not my man words, but one of the ladies of our church, right? I say that guys, because uh, when I was a young man and I thought that I understood women, I probably would have preached this passage differently, okay? Now that I'm a little older, hopefully a little wiser, and I dug into this passage and I realized I was way in over my head as it relates to the ways that women think, I enlisted some help from some of the ladies in my community group to speak into this. Because I gotta say, I'm so thankful that I did. Some of the things that they shared are so beneficial. And I'm gonna sprinkle some of this throughout the sermon today. Uh, I do promise to protect their names though. They, they didn't do this for recognition. They did this to help me. One woman clearly said about this story, or said about this story, this story, this story clearly displays Satan's work. How he preys on the things we struggle with and our insecurities. How Satan uses these struggles and insecurities in order to plant lies and deceit into our heads and our hearts, distracting us from the mission. Right on, isn't it? I mean, guys, Sarai, she's struggling with infertility and she is distracted from the mission, right? This is not a message on infertility. This can happen to any one of us. But if you remember, God promised Abram he'd make him into a great nation that would be a blessing to all nations. Sarah's lost sight of that. She's not focused on that. She's not focused on being a blessing to anyone in this moment. She's focused on her having a baby, Right? Satan will use those insecurities. Another woman in my community group said this, this is Adam and Eve all over again. In the garden, Eve focused on what she didn't have rather than what she did have. So she took the fruit into her own hands and she took it to her husband. In this story, Sarai did the same. Sarai focused on what she didn't have. She took matters in her own hands and she took her ideas to her husband. As you see this coming together? Yeah, the same woman went on to say, this story is such a reminder of the weight of a wife's words to her husband. I think we as wives underestimate how much weight our words and opinions influence our husbands. Our husbands so often want to be pleasing to us, but they first must be pleasing to God. After reading this, I want to point my husband to God. I'm so thankful that I invited these ladies to speak into this. It's so helpful. I mean, this is a crazy story, right? I mean, if you recall from last week, the Lord had just come to Abram in chapter 15. He'd restated, he'd, he'd restated the promise that he made to him back in chapter 12. And now Abram turns right around, listens to Sarai's proposal instead of God. And what lead, then this leads to some serious drama. Let's look at verses three through six. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked at me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. Remember the pattern. God makes promises, man makes problems. Guys, I think we've got some problems, right? This is a drama-filled moment. One lady in my community group said, anyone who claims that the Old Testament is a snore to read needs to understand that just this one passage is way juicier than any episode of Desperate Housewives I ever saw. Right? There's a lot going on. I want us to have a quick reality check on who's to blame. 
I think we can easily look at this passage and think, man, Sarah is, Sarai is out of her mind. And right, we, we can think that. But although Sarai is the, clearly the instigator of this mess and it's easy to blame her, Abram has some accountability as well. Okay, in fact, some of the ways, uh, in some ways, this sin that actually happens in 16 can actually be traced back to Abram's unbelief in 12 when uh, they left the land of Canaan because there was a famine there and they sojourned down into Egypt and he lied about Sarai being his wife, called her his sister, uh, and that led to uh, Sarai being taken as Pharaoh's wife. Uh, and then you'll notice that um, Hagar is an Egyptian so she was actually given to Abram and Sarai in that moment. And so Abram's failure in 12 likely contributed to his failure in 16. We're gonna cover that in more detail in just a minute. But not only is this likely a result of Abram's previous sin in chapter 12, but he also has a present sin. Right? There's something else going on here that I think a lot of us may miss. It's, it's referred to as the sin of omission. Right? In case the sin of omission is new to you, let me quickly explain that uh, a lot of us think that uh, when we commit sin, that we have to commit it. We have to physically act out upon it. Uh, but there is such a thing as the sin of omission. Uh, James 4.17 says, anyone who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Right? So there's sin of omission is knowing the right thing to do and not doing it. And we certainly see that in this case. In this account, it, it would have been a great opportunity for Abram to stand up for what's right. It would have been a great opportunity for Abram to exercise leadership, but instead he sinfully became passive and he sinned by omission. Right? We see this in the text as it seems with little or no objection, Abram passively follows the instructions of his wife. And then of course he sins by commission. But rather than Abram pointing Sarah to the promise that God had made him, right, he agrees to her plan, her sinful plan, and, and so he doesn't lead. And so by not leading, Abram is also in sin. So we need to be careful not to place all the blame on Sarai because there's certainly both to blame here. I love what one of the women in my group said about this. Again, we women have a lot of hormones bumping through our veins. And there's a lot of times we need our husbands to be the voice of reason. I read this passage and think, man, I'm just like Sarai sometimes. I make rash decisions based on emotions and not faith. I seek what I want instead of what the Lord wants. I refuse to believe he will provide and give me all that I need in his perfect timing. So I try to manipulate situations, maybe even my husband's thoughts and decisions. Instead of fully submitting to the Lord and allowing him to guide me and to make the right choices, I take matters into my own hands. For reading this story, I would have liked to have read that Abram told Sarah, woman, no, it's a trap. But instead we see Abram sinfully let Sarai run the show and all we see is drama, drama, drama. Love it. Love it. Crazy. As I want us to, I want us to shift gears here. I want us to now dig a little deeper into the character of Hagar. Right? I, I, as I studied this story, I realized that a lot of folks, including myself, have in the past uh, thought of Hagar as some sort of a scapegoat that could be blamed. Right? I've even caught myself using language like that. What I mean is I've said, I've said things like this, like, hey, let's not take matters in our own hands. I don't want to end up in a Hagar moment. Right? And to where that may be true to some degree, the reality is that Hagar is a real person. She's not a scapegoat to be blamed and she's not, not somebody to be tossed aside. I think that's so easy to overlook. Okay, what Abram and Sarai did was horrible, but not because of Hagar. What, what Abram and Sarai did was horrible because of their sin. Okay, the book of Romans, it tells us that Abram never wavered in his faith, but Sarai sure did. Right? And her doubt 
led to a sinful self-centeredness that led to more sin and more self-centeredness. So so who is Hagar and where does she come from? Well, clearly we see in the text that Hagar is Egyptian. Mentioned that a minute ago. Uh, but so the most likely scenario is that Hagar was actually one of the gifts from Pharaoh to Abram recorded in Genesis 12. In this story, there was a famine in the land in, uh, of Canaan. And so Abram and Sarai, they sojourned down to Egypt. I mentioned that. Uh, but before they arrived in Egypt, due to Sarai's beauty, the Bible says she was a beautiful woman. Uh, Abram, he got scared. Uh, he got scared for his own skin. And he thought, hey, man, before we enter into Egypt, um, hey, Sarai, come here. I want to... I I want to tell you, hey, if anybody asks you, just tell them you're my sister. Now, the reality is that she was his half-sister, right? So in his mind, he justified it to protect his own skin. Uh, he thought that Pharaoh would find this beautiful woman and kill him to get her. And so he lied about the whole thing, and, and Pharaoh took her as a wife. Uh, but the Lord had other plans. We know that, right? Because we know how the story ends. We know that Abram and Sarai end back up together, uh, and the Lord has plans to produce this child through them. And so now that Sarai is Pharaoh's wife, the Lord sends plagues upon Pharaoh's house. And there's a whole big mess that happens there. Pharaoh finds out the truth that she's not just his sister, she's his wife. So he comes to Abram and goes, hey, why did you lie to me? Take her, go. And remember all those gifts that I gave you for her? Yeah, take those too. I don't want any part of this. So the reality is, is Abram gets richer after selling his wife to Pharaoh. It's a crazy story, I'm telling you. But Genesis 12, 16 uh, actually says this. And for her sake, meaning Pharaoh for Sarai's sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So if you catch that, place in between sheep and donkeys are female servants. This is why most, most people think this is where Hagar came from. So what this means is that Hagar was part of the settlement package for Sarai. She's part of a settlement package. Now that we know this, actually makes what Abram and Sarai did a little less surprising to me. Maybe you too. Right? That's kind of the thing that's going on here, buying and selling people. So we can make a couple more observations about Hagar here. I had to be careful with this. Uh, just to give you confidence, and you know, as elders, we send each other sermons to each other before we preach them just to fact check each other. I sent this to the guys a couple days ago, and those guys had, had caught me starting to place some of my own opinions on Hagar here. And, and, and I tell you that because it's just so easy to do. I was talking to Lance about this before the sermon, right? There's so many speculations that I can, uh, and personal opinions, that I can start projecting on who she is. And so I had to back off of some of that, and I may explain some of that, but uh, I tried to just dial it back to some pretty safe assumptions that we can make about Hagar, right? Uh, one is that we know that Pharaoh gifted her uh, the fact that Pharaoh gifted her to Sarai, uh, and we know that she was a likely candidate to conceive from Sarai, right? So what this tells us is that she was, probably wasn't married yet, and she was probably pretty young. That's a pretty safe assumption. We also know that Hagar was a servant to Sarai, handmaid, not a laborer. And what we know about handmaids is they had pretty cushy jobs as it relates to slaves. So even though she's a slave, she's kind of a high-class slave, if that makes sense. She probably came from a high-class background. So although we don't know for sure, again, safe assumption, we think uh, Hagar was a young girl that had lived most of her life near or in the palace of probably the most wealthy man in the area, the Pharaoh of Egypt, right? But then one day, a beautiful, strange woman shows up, right? This is Pharaoh's new wife. She becomes one of his wives. Everyone gets sick. And now Hagar is being sent away with this woman to live in a tent 
speak a different language, learn a new culture, and serve a new God she's never even heard of. Make sense? Yeah, I mean, there's, you start thinking about where she came from and how she got into this mess, and guys, the story gets really difficult for me. I don't know about you. This is what I wrote down. I thought, man, I don't really know what to say about a young woman being forced into marriage with an 85-year-old man for the purpose of having a baby. But she is. Some crazy stuff, guys. Then when she gets pregnant, she smirks at Sarai. And that's where I had to be careful. And this is where those guys called me out because I started projecting all kinds of opinions on this little smirk, right? Like what she must have been thinking, what was going through her head. I can't blame her, you know, all this stuff. But the text doesn't say that. But she smirks at Sarai. I think it is hard to blame her, right? But um, then Abram and Sarai, who are believers, who even though it was legal in this day, then mistreated Hagar, right? She smirks at Sarai, Sarai gets angry, and then these two that are believers, they actually mistreat her. Um, they, they use her basically to have this baby, and then, they, then they, they, they're mean to her. They abuse her in some ways, and she runs, right? And I just had to imagine, like, what she must be thinking in this moment. She's, now, I mean, if you're Hagar, think about what you're thinking in this moment. You've you come into this new culture, you're learning this new language, you learn about this God you never heard of, you've got these masters, Abram and Sarai, you have a baby for Sarai, you conceive, you do what they ask you to do, you get pregnant, one day you get a little cocky, you smirk at Sarai, and then she turns on you, and then you feel like you've got nobody in the world you can connect with, and so what do you do? You run. You run, and that's what she did. The text says that she ran uh, into the desert. Remember their pattern in the Bible. God made a promise, man, made a, man makes mistakes, but now God restores. Okay, so she's in the desert. In verse seven and eight says this, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. All right. Let's just, let's just think about what's going on here. I mean, Hagar is probably on her way back to what she knows. She's probably on her way back to Egypt, right? Because that's what we do. When we get into challenging places, we like to run back to what's comfortable. Also, sure, uh, the spring on the way to Shur is on the way to Egypt, so geographically we know this fits. So she's probably on her way back to Egypt when the angel of the Lord finds her and he greets her. He greets her. And something I don't want to pass over here, guys, is when... You read scripture from now on, I'd like to encourage you to pay attention to the difference between an angel of the Lord and the angel of the Lord. I don't know if you've ever caught this, but the angel of the Lord actually occurs 48 times in scripture. And when you read about the angel of the Lord, uh, you'll notice that there's a big difference in the way the angel of the Lord speaks and how other angels speak. The angel of the Lord identifies as deity. Right? We see this in this story, and we see this in stories like Abraham and Isaac, and we see this in stories like the burning bush. The angel of the Lord speaks as God himself. Okay, so a lot of folks think that this indicates he could be the pre-incarnate Christ. But who does he appear to? Hagar, in the desert. This woman who's run out there. Imagine her out in the desert by herself, feeling lonely, feeling abused, feeling tossed aside, feeling like nobody's understood her grief, nobody's understood the fear that she's experienced, and that nobody sees her. And who does the, pre, who does the angel of the Lord show up? to Hagar in this moment. I don't know about you, but this kind of gets my attention. All right? The angel of the Lord just showed up in the story and spoke to who I would think would be the most unlikely character in the story for him to speak to. But he does. And he calls her by name. He says to her, Hagar, servant of Sarai, 
And notice he doesn't acknowledge her as Abram's wife. He says, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Okay, this, this kind of reminds me of God walking in the garden and calling to Adam and Eve, hey, where are you? Right? God knows. Right? This is just his way of calling her out, kind of bringing her back to her senses. Where are you coming from? Where are you going? Like helping her to re- recognize the reality of the situation that's going on. But then what he says to her might actually surprise you. In verse nine, the angel of the Lord says to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. What? That's not, not what I would want to hear. How about you? Anybody want to run back to, your, to, to Sarai in this moment? Now, I, I'm like, I don't even want her to when I read the text, right? But the reality of the day is that she was indeed a servant. She was a slave to Sarai. And so in this case, Hagar running away, it wasn't the solution that God had intended for her. And so she send, he sends her back uh, to submit to Sarai, and Hagar did it. And the reason she did it is because of the promise that the angel made to her in this moment. The angel announces the pregnancy of Hagar. He promises that he will also, her meaning her son, will also become a great nation. He instructs her to name the child Ishmael and then describes how his descendants will create hostility towards others, a problem we're still dealing with today. And then Hagar, the servant girl, does something that no one else in the entire Bible ever does. She gives God a name. Hagar, the servant girl, in the desert, lonely, afraid, used and abused, the angel of the Lord comes to her to minister to her, and she says this. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. The way this is interpreted is the God who sees me, El Roy, the God who sees me. It's like a, a shepherd leaving his flock to go find the lost sheep and he's found her. And that lost sheep looks up at him and says, you see me, you found me. Love this tender moment. Love what one of the women in my community group said about this tender moment. So often it's in the pain in our lives that the Lord reveals himself in his character. Reading this, I think of Hosea 2.14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and I will speak tenderly to her. Although Hagar was most definitely a victim in the situation, she chose not to become bitter. She basically ran into the desert to die, but God had a different plan. Like so many of us, through her pain in this dark place that God made himself known to her. Had she not been in that painful situation, she would not know this aspect of God's character. God in his amazing love and character draws near to his children in the darkest, most needy, painful times to reveal himself in an intimate way that we would not know him otherwise. It's in the most painful times of my life that he's drawn near and revealed himself and I wouldn't trade that intimacy for anything in the world. Anybody else relate to that? Yeah. So what does she do? What does Hagar do? Just to summarize the rest of the story, she goes back. She goes back to Sarai. She makes things right. She gives birth to this baby. She names him Ishmael. And then we learn in chapter 21 of Genesis that about 13 years later, after some time's gone by and after Abram has treated Ishmael like he's his one and only son, he's raised him that way, that God's promise of a son to come through Abram and Sarai comes to be, and Isaac is born. And what happens next is Isaac grows up a little bit, and one day, outside the tent, looking at Ishmael over there, and Isaac kind of says something to make fun of Ishmael. And Ishmael probably said something back. And Isaac probably said something back. We don't know, right? Speculation. Bottom line is Ishmael then makes fun of Isaac. And guess who gets mad? Sarai. Oh, no, you don't. 
That kid now who's 13, the one I didn't want in the first place, really, he's now making fun of my son Isaac. And so she runs to Abram, she complains, and then her and Abram come up with this plan to now send Hagar out into the desert for a second time, although now it's this time with her 13-year-old son Ishmael, and Abram gives her a bag of water, basically sends her in the desert to die. Crazy story. So here we find ourselves back in the desert with Hagar, only this time she's been sent. The first time she ran, the second time she was sent. She was sent to die. Right? And she runs out of water. Her and Ishmael out in the desert at the end of themselves, at the end of herself after all she's been through. The Bible says she places Ishmael up next to a tree. She walks away. Again, speculation, we can think that she probably did that because at the end of herself, she couldn't bear to see her son die. So she wanted to walk away. She calls upon the name of the Lord. Help me, help me, help me. I have to believe she'd been there before. She remembered that. Angel of the Lord, hey, the God who sees me, will you help me again? Don't know what she said. My speculation but guess what he does? The angel Lord meets her here again. He meets her here again. And this time, he shows her a spring, a spring of water. He saves her life. And he restates the promise he'd made before about Ishmael becoming a great nation. Okay, and then other than some allegorical reference in Galatians that Paul uses about Sarah and Hagar and legalism and grace, we never hear the word Hagar again. But most scholars assume that she went back to Egypt because... We do hear about the Ishmaelites. I know a lot of you that know this story, you're probably expecting me to talk about the connection between the Ishmaelites and Islam, right? And there most certainly is a connection, but I actually want to share a detail that if you're like me, you may not have noticed before in the story of Joseph. The reason I want to share this instead of talking about Islam is not only due to time, right, but I think this detail helps to providentially connect this story that we just covered to the greater story of the Bible. And the story of Joseph, which many of you are probably somewhat familiar with. Joseph, if you recall, he's sold by his brothers into slavery. He's, his brothers hate, or almost his brothers hate him. Some of them want to kill him, but they have a debate, and they decide not to kill him, and so instead they throw him in a pit. And one day they're out in the desert, and uh, the brothers uh, see a caravan of travelers passing by, and they get in their minds, hey, what if we just sold him off? What if we just sold him off into slavery? And so that's what they do. They sell him to slavery. What the Bible says in Genesis 37, 25 is that the caravan of travelers were Ishmaelites. They were Ishmaelites. It's amazing, right? A little detail I've never really noticed before. How many times have I read that passage? We're going to save this story for another day, but the reason I bring that up is because God, we see that in this story that God providentially uses all the events in this story to point towards the story of Joseph, which then points towards the Exodus, which is the redemption of the Israelites from the land of Egypt and all moving towards God's plan of redeeming uh, his people, right? In God's providence, everything connects according to his plan and his time and his promise. I think we learn from this, guys. And when, don't think, when things don't make sense to us, we can trust in God's promise. We can trust in God's plans. When God's ways don't make sense to, sense to us, we can trust that he's good. We can trust that he's full of hope. We can trust that he's know, he knows what he's doing. Friends, I think this is the heart of the story. Right? In spite of the fact that we so often walk away from God's plan and God's promise, in spite of the fact that we always take matters in our own hands and we find ourselves in a mess, he sees us. Right? He sees us that make messes. He sees the brokenhearted. He sees those who've been used and abused, and he restores according to his plan. All right, so I want us to quickly, with this in mind, I want us to quickly look at three points of application that we can take away. Number one is that we can trust in God's plan. 
It's something we've seen from the study of Genesis and in this story specifically, right, is that God has a plan. He always follows through, but it's in his timing, it's not ours. A few weeks ago, we looked at how God called Abram into the unknown, right, how he trusted him every step of the way. We celebrated Abram from that, right, how he heard God's word, he trusted God's word, he acted upon God's word, but we also saw that God didn't put a time frame on it, did he? And the story, 10 years went by. And I got impatient. Guys, I think if we're honest, a lot of us get impatient after 10 minutes, right? I think this story reminds us that we can trust in God's plan. We can trust that God shows us what we need to know today as we trust him with tomorrow. So maybe today some of us are like Abram and Sarai. Right, maybe we've become impatient. We've walked away from God's plan. We've taken matters in our own hands. We've made a mess of our lives and maybe those around us. Maybe some of us say we've allowed Satan to tap into our insecurities. We started listening to his lies, deceit. Maybe we've done some things we never thought we were capable of. Guys, this story reminds us that even when we've made mistakes like this, God sees. God restores. And when Satan tempts us to think that when we've done terrible things like this, that we're finished and we're unusable, right? we see stories like this that remind us that that's a lie, that God sees and God restores. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Number two, we can trust in God's promises. Some of us today, we're more like Hagar. All right, we've been sinned against, we've been used, we've been abused, we've been tossed aside maybe. The story reminds us of God's promise to never leave us and never forsake us. That God sees, that God restores the same God that restored Hagar is the same God that restores us today. So when you and, I, you and I find ourselves used and abused and broken and tossed aside like Hagar, we can find comfort knowing that God sees us. And even though hard times like this happen, that just like Hagar, God will and he'll make himself known to us and he will restore us. Okay, Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Okay, and I, I know as I say this, I also need to say this, that the way that God restores, it's, also, it's often a lot different than we would expect him to, right? It often takes a lot longer. The consequences of those that have hurt us or those that we have hurt takes longer to heal and be restored. It often hurts more than we would expect. And although we may not see justice according to our eyes in this story, in this story we can trust that God will make things right and restore in his time. God doesn't put a time frame on his promises and he doesn't put a time frame on healing because he has purpose in it all. And if you just cringed at that idea that God finds purpose in your pain, let me just say this to you. God, if you're like me and you've ever had the thought that you don't really want your pain to be used for anything, especially God's purposes because it just hurts too much to think about, I want to remind you this morning that if you're not allowing God to use it for his purpose, then you are allowing Satan to use it for his. I don't know how many times I've done this, guys, but I've had pain so deep down inside of me, I've just wanted to keep it suppressed. Some of you guys can relate to that. Driving down the road, you start having a thought, and you just want to keep it at bay, so you turn the radio on. You're in your office, and you start having a thought, and so you flip the computer on, you flip your phone on, Anything to distract, anything to self-medicate, anything to keep that problem, that pain down deep inside. You know who wins? Satan. I feel like I need to remind us of that today, that 
if you've got that kind of pain, you've buried something deep down inside, something's happened to you and you don't even want to think about it, God wants, God sees and God wants to restore and he may just be asking you to bring it to him. Okay? I want you to think about something. Hagar's experience with the angel Lord, it was miraculous, but if we really stop, to stop and think about it, was it that unique? I don't say that to discredit your pain, your experience, Hagar's pain, her experience, mine. But I say that because miracles like this happen in our church all the time, right? People find themselves in a dark and broken time. Maybe they've been used or tossed aside. Maybe they're struggling in marriage. Maybe they're struggling at some point in their life and they get to this low point and then who meets them there? Christ. And who restores them? Christ. Guys, we celebrate stories like this at Crosspoint all the time. So again, I tell that not to discredit, but to encourage. If I can just get a show of hands, like how many of us in our brokenness have ever run into a desert of our own making? Yeah, just probably every hand in here. How many of us have ever been in the desert because of someone else's sin against us? A lot of hands going up. And how many of us have ever had God meet us there regardless of how we got there? See what I mean? Like the angel of the Lord meeting her in this desert, it's miraculous, but it's not unique. A lot of us have been in this moment. And so if you're here and you've suppressed something and you haven't gotten that out loud with God or somebody else, I hope you're encouraged by the show of hands that are here this morning. I'll read it again, Psalm 30, or yes, the Psalm that I read to you. This, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And finally, friends, we're gonna close quickly. We can trust in the gospel. Okay, when we began today, we were reminded of the promise that God made to Adam and Eve in the garden as they lived according to his will, but they didn't live according to his will, right? They made a mistake. They simply took matters in their own hands. They brought sin, they brought shame, they brought guilt upon themselves, and that sin was imputed to the rest of us today. But God pursued them, he covered them, and he made a promise to them that anyone who would believe in the seed of promise to come could find forgiveness and could find restoration. Well, guess what, guys? God chose and promised to make Abram into a great nation that would ultimately be a blessing to all. But like Adam and Eve, he made a mistake. All right, but if we jump ahead in the story, what we find is that although nations came from Hagar and Ishmael, the seed of promise that God promised to Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3, he came through the lineage of Isaac, the son of Sarah. Jesus, the seed of promise, sees. He cares. He restores. And he does so through his finished work on the cross. Jesus is the answer to the sin problem of Adam and Eve. Jesus is the answer to the sin problem of Abram and Sarai. And Jesus is the answer to the sin problem that all of us have today, whether we have taken matters in our own hands and we've sinned against others or others have taken matters in their own hands and sinned against us. That's what we're reminded of in this story. The story is such a reminder that we can trust in his plan and his promise and his gospel. Guys, pray with me. Father, I thank you for... Uh, stories like this in your word that remind us that you are in control, that we are not, that you are God, that we are not, that you have a plan, that we're to listen to your plan so that things may go well for us. God, that we can trust you in your plan. God, we thank you for this. I don't know where, any of us, where all of us are today in our life and our stage and our circumstances, but you do. You know where every single person in this room is. You know the struggles we have. You know, the sins that we have buried so deep inside of us that, uh, that are hurting us, that Satan is using for our despair. 
And God, I pray that today you might use your word to draw those out of us, that we might confess those to you, whether we have sinned against others, have been sinned against, that we might move towards forgiveness, that we might move towards healing. God, we trust you in this. We know that your restoration is different than we would expect. It may take longer, it may hurt more, but God, we know that you have purpose in it. And so God, use what Satan has intended for evil for your good in our lives. God, help us to be walking, living testimonies of like Hagar. God, that in our pain, you met us in the wilderness and you saw us and you restored us. I thank you for the reminders in this story. It's in Jesus' name, amen.